are going to be in Matthew 19, and um, we have more to cover than we have time to cover. And so I'm going to squeeze a two-part message into one. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not kidding. We're going to do this. In honor of, you know. All right, so here's the thing. Um, we're going to talk about a subject that is very difficult to think about. Everybody in this room probably has been touched by divorce in some way either personally or because you were a child of parents that got separated or you know somebody really well that has. This is, this is hard subject to think about, to touch on, to talk about. I do not pick this on purpose. It's in order. I'm doing them in order. And so just know that this one is not easy for you, I know, as well as my part is probably the easiest, and, it, and I know it, and it's not. It doesn't feel that way. Um, at the same time, it's extremely important that we talk about this. Um, our culture is talking about it. Um, you can drive down the road and see the $250 and you can get divorced and the online, just get a certificate. You can, I mean, it's never been easier to get a divorce in our nation. And um, it, there's just, we've, we need to talk about it from God's point of view. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to answer the question today. What does Jesus say about marriage, divorce, and singleness. Okay? So yes, there's a lot here, so we won't... I'll cut the chit-chat and jump in. How about that? All right? But I do want to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, that your word talks about things that matter. And when I think about what you think about when it comes to marriage and divorce and, and singleness, sometimes I get confused and I think more like the world than like you do. And, and Lord, I, I confess that. I repent of that. I don't want to be like that. And um, I certainly don't want to lead others to do that. And Lord, the reality is we live in a world that is broken, corrupted, and, and messed up. And so when it comes to taking good things that you've instituted like marriage, we just mess it up sometimes. And so Lord, I pray that today you would help your word clarify things for people as far as uh, what is what is your how do you see marriage and how do you see these other things and then lord help us also to realize that even though we some of us have experienced great pain in the past because of things like divorce that there is forgiveness available to all who will turn to you with humility and faith your grace and your mercy are abundant and they are for us and so, Lord, I pray that anyone that is wounded from this kind of thing today would leave in a better place that would lead to better and fuller healing. And, Lord, for those who may be struggling with this very thing, maybe even tempted to go down this road, I pray that you'll clarify for them how you would approach this that in a way that will help them make better decisions. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 18, Jesus started talking to the disciples about how the church talks to the church. In other words, how the people of God talk to each other, okay? And I won't review that, but last week we did focus on why we forgive, and so we talked about the heart of forgiveness, and that is not here by accident. We talk about marriage, divorce, right after forgiveness, because one of the ways we see less divorce is we find more willingness and ability to forgive one another in the midst of relationships that can sometimes get really difficult, okay? So that is kind of, that is just set this, the table for us in what we're going to talk about today. Now, um, Matthew's going to make a little 
a little transition statement in verses 1 and 2, and then Jesus is going to start talking again. So let's look at that. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? I'm sorry, verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, chapter 18 things, okay? And I could summarize, but time. So when Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, Large crowds followed him and he healed them. So let's do our, let's pull out our little map here. Okay. Put on your, your, your imagination caps. Okay. Over oh, here's the sea, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. And then you have the, so you have the coast and then you have this region, northern part of Israel called Galilee. That's where Nazareth was or, and Jesus was born there. Below that you have Samaria and below there you have Judea. In Judea you have Jerusalem, Bethlehem, places you've heard of maybe. And then you have the Jordan River, which kind of cuts the, on the east side. It cuts those regions from the Decapolis and Perea and other places out here. And, and so, and you have the Sea of Galilee in here and you have the Dead Sea down here. Okay. So Jesus is, is moving. Okay. He's moving from, he's leaving Galilee. Galilee is home. Okay. That would be like, that's his territory. That's his people. That's what he's used to as far as growing up. And most, a lot of his ministry happened in Galilee. He is turning away and heading now towards Jerusalem, which is Matthew's way of saying he's ready and, and, and heading to the cross. So that's kind of in the backdrop of all of this. We don't want to lose sight of the cross because that's what made forgiveness possible. We talked about that in depth last week. Okay. So he is heading on purpose, knowing the cross is coming, knowing he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He may, I don't know how much of that he understands, but he certainly can take what he knows to be true and see it written in the scriptures of the Old Testament scriptures of, of the Jew, Jewish scriptures that were his scriptures in that day. So he's heading with purpose. He's heading with um, intention. And as he does so, because of his popularity after two and a half, three and a half years of ministry, as he walks, and this is the way he gets around, people find out ahead of him, he's coming this way. Now, why would that be a big deal? Remember, this is the guy that can heal just about, well, he can heal anything. And so everybody with a hurt is coming and they're trying to meet him on the road. And it says that he didn't just run into a crowd, it says crowds plural in verse 2, and he says he healed them there. It doesn't say he healed a couple. He healed the crowds, those who had needs, and there's no copay required. There's no physical therapy follow-up. It's instant. It's miraculous, and it's for a purpose that's bigger than just being healed physically. It's for a purpose to open their eyes to there's more to this world than you can see. There's more than this life that you can see. There's the the best that's yet to come in the hereafter that I'm trying to help you see here through healing just a glimpse of what is awaiting us, a world without pain and suffering, without division, without hate, and just fill in the list of all the brokenness in our world that awaits. And so he he uses healing to, to help people see the kingdom, and he helps he uses healing to help people hear the message. It's like, wow, if this guy can do this, I'm listening to what he has to say. So that's what's happening as he's moving towards Jerusalem. So it's interesting to me that when he runs into the Pharisees, who are the Jewish religious leaders, they're not the only ones, but they're the ones that are big on teaching, that when they run into Jesus, and it's on purpose, they're looking for him, 
They don't ask the questions that I would have asked if I had been in their place. They don't ask the questions like, are you the Messiah? I mean, Jesus is doing Messiah things. Messiah means anointed one. It's the Hebrew word for Christ. And it means, and there is a Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures foretell, prophesy about. We're expecting him. We're praying for him. We leave chairs empty at certain events so that we have a seat for him when he shows up. I mean, there's this whole... Uh, national psyche that says there's a Messiah, he's coming, but he's not here yet. And Jesus is doing all the things that the scripture said the Messiah was going to do. He's doing them. So I would think a great question to ask would be, are you the Messiah? They don't ask that. So then I would go, well, he's been healing all these people, cripples, lame, demon-possessed, um, you know, stomach issues, can't hear, can't speak, crip- I mean, you name it, he's healing them. Might be a good question to ask. How are you doing that? Why are you doing that? To what end? They don't ask that. Jesus has talked about to his disciples more than one occasion. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Maybe they could ask why. They don't ask that. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Okay. So this is where we are. Dr. Phil, Phil Donahue. All right. So, um, in verse 3, we see some Pharisees came to him to test him. Uh, the word here, it can also be translated tempted or trapped, and, and that's the idea that Matthew's trying to get across, is these guys are not here to learn anything from Jesus. They're here to discredit him, to make him less potent, less effective to at least half of the, of the nation. Um, by the way, um, sometimes this messes up, and I appreciate folks online when you tell us that that's happening, because you guys don't know this, but sometimes when it sounds fine in here, it doesn't sound okay on there. So um, be, feel free to chat in and let people know that are um, monitoring the chats uh, if there's a, an issue on that. We'll keep working on making that better. All right, so he says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There was a debate that was going on in these days and, and for centuries, okay? And yes, even back then, there were people who were conservative theologically and liberal theologically, and they had their, and so, you know, it's nothing new under the sun, right? And so they would argue about this issue because in Deuteronomy 24, it appears that God gave Moses permission to give the people permission to have divorces, this seemed odd because he also told them uh, for, and then the reason is debated. That was the, that's the issue. You know, for what reason? What's the legitimate, legitimate grounds? Things haven't changed much, have they? Um, and that, one of the reasons that was a problem is because in Leviticus, it appeared that if someone committed adultery, they were going to be stoned, killed. So if you, if that's the price for adultery, then you don't need a law for divorce unless there are other reasons. And so there were lots of debates. Conservative camp said it's just adultery. Liberal camp said it's for whatever you want because you're going to stone them if they have adultery. And so they're fighting and they have their talk shows and they have their commentaries and they write and they talk and they argue because that's what you do when you have different camps that, yeah. And so that's what they're doing. They're trying to get Jesus to answer the question so that he makes one side or the other really mad. Okay. Now we know that this is a big deal. King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded over this issue. Okay. So we know they know what they're doing, but Jesus also knows, and he's not just gentle as a dove. He is wise as well. And he says, haven't you read? That's pretty good. Actually, who's he talking to experts in the old Testament? Haven't you read the Bible? 
Haven't you read, he replied, and then he refers to Genesis, that in the beginning, the creator made them, he's quoting now, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, this is basically God telling us what Jesus saying, this is what I believe about marriage. And as I say this, this is not the point, okay? If we make this the point, we're missing the point, but that, I digress. Okay, for now, the point is, the question is, what does God, what does Jesus say about marriage? He says it's between a man and a woman for life, okay? That's God's ideal design for marriage. God came up with that. He's the first one that came up with the idea of marriage. He instituted it at creation, Everything else is a distortion or an adaption to that basic ideal. Not man and man, he could have done that. Not woman and woman, he could have done that. Man and woman for life. That's the ideal, ideal will of God. Of course, we know that God also has a permissive will, which means because he allows us to be free, that there are things he allows to happen he doesn't dogmatically make. We are not puppets on strings. We have a choice. We have a say. And sometimes we make choices that aren't good. And so God has what I would call regulations that he has added so that it minimizes the damage to those, especially those that are innocently involved, but all involved. Okay? And then he'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to see that these, this is what Jesus says about marriage. Man and woman... For life. And then he uses this word, he uses five different times he says something along the lines that are unity, a theme of unity. I'll read it again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, another point I want you to see is that God, I said it already, but I want it, God is joined, God created marriage, God also creates your marriage. Okay, we we like to think we went and got married. Okay, it was our decision. Okay, we don't live in the day of arranged marriages. Most of us don't, anyway. Okay, but people still that still happens, and and the, the that's not at the end of the day. God is the one who actually makes the marriage happen. Okay, we have our weddings and ceremonies, and we do our part. And we stand, usually you stand before each other and you share, exchange vows that are vows of profound commitment that are appropriate and should be not only spoken but lived. And that's a part of the marriage covenant. It's stating what the covenant is and what it's about. This is the PG-13 part, okay? So hang on. So it's consummated through a sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. Okay, And somehow that combination of commitment and sexual intimacy that, uh, that, uh, um, that brings that together, there's something about that union that is unique in all of humanity. Okay, And that's what makes it marriage, a biblical marriage relationship, not just a legal thing. It's fine if the state wants to record these things and have based tax law on it, and all of those things are fine, but that's not who defines and decides who marriage is, okay? This is why it's unfortunate that our, our court system has done what they've done, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what they've done. 
The question is, how will you view marriage and how will you enter into that and maintain that relationship? And Jesus is saying, God did it. And what God puts together, we shouldn't separate. Okay? However, he makes allowance for it. He permits it. But the Pharisees, they don't, they're not there. They don't get that. They misread the Old Testament. Look what they say. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? He's referring to Deuteronomy 24.1. But he make, they make a mistake when they say Moses command. Watch what Jesus says. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted, not commanded, he permitted you to divorce your wives, and then he gives a, one of the reasons, because your hearts were hard. Now, one of the reasons is to protect the innocent or to minimize the damage that is done due to divorce. Let's face it, when, when you divorce, there are consequences, okay? Just like if you don't divorce, there could be consequences. I mean, everything we choose to do leads to consequences, right? One of the reasons people want to get divorced is because it seems like it would be less painful than trying to make it work. I mean, I totally understand where one could get there, and I'm not saying that's not the case at times. I'm not here to decide whether yours was good or not. That's not my point here. My point here is that there is God can redeem wherever you are, and he can also help those who aren't there yet to avoid a very painful journey by heeding the words of the Lord. So, uh, Moses permitted uh, you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. What's a hard heart? If you remember the parable of the soils, I won't go back through it except to remind you that out of the four soils, only one of them is fruitful, which means only one of them is representative of someone who receives the gospel. It bears fruit in their lives, proving they're a disciple. The other three fail. They fall short. A hard heart is not receptive to the truth of God. It's not receptive to the things of God. It's not receptive to not only hearing the word, but doing the word of God. It's what we talk about when we mean following Jesus. A hard heart doesn't follow the Lord, doesn't follow the Lord's word, doesn't respect the authority of God's word in, in, in our lives. Okay? And so God, and so what God is saying is you're not finding a way to make it work in your marriages and you're divorcing for all kinds of reasons. And that's not okay. And he's going to, that's what's next. So look, he says, um, but it was not so this way from the beginning. If you read Genesis and you read Adam and Eve and the beautiful love story where God brings them together in that first marriage, there's never a word that says, and if you have trouble, here's how you divorce. It's just not there because it's not his ideal will. It's not part of his plan. It is why God, it's clearly why, or it explains why God hates divorce. Malachi. But that said, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a way to help when there doesn't seem to be another option. And he's going to explain that here in verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for, mar for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay? So the except, one of the, this is called, one of these is called the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. I want to just cover that up and set it aside for just a minute to make another point and then I'll come back. Let's read the verse without the exception. This is the way it is in Mark and this is the way it is in Luke. So I think it's certainly worth our time. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. So that's divorce on non-biblical grounds and remarriage leads to adultery, okay? And you could also say if a woman leaves her husband, if a woman divorces her, her husband 
and marries another man, she commits adultery. So it's, it's both ways. And I think even in Luke, it goes another step and says the person who married into that also commits adultery. So um, all, all that to say, with the exception of the exceptions, there are no good reasons for divorce in God's eyes. I know that's hard to see because there's probably times when we think, I've got a list of good reasons. Okay? Remember last week, we talked about forgiveness. Okay? Well, he won't forgive. She won't forgive. I understand. I, I understand. Okay? I am the son of a divorced family. Okay? I don't know what it's like to be divorced, but I know what it's like to be in a family that has experienced that. Okay? So I am not unsympathetic is what I'm trying to say. I don't, I'm not saying I understand where your situation, because I don't. And I, and it, it bothers me when I think about the pain that this represents in our churches and in our country. It, it's, there's a lot of hurt here, which is why we need to think about this like God thinks about it. So he says, let's, let's, so let's do this. What about this exception? He says, except for sexual immorality. Okay, well, what is that? So the word used here in the original Greek is pornea, which is where we get our word pornography. Okay? So that's a gross amount of sexual immorality. Okay? Most, some people would say it's only adultery. The reason I don't think it's that is because he uses the word for adultery, Greek word for adultery, in the same sentence. He didn't use it there. That tells me it's a little broader, if not a lot broader. Okay? I think at the very least, and this is my take, this is not, I can't point to a verse. My thinking is that sexual immorality would refer to, think of the Old Testament scriptures, and any sexual ethic that is against what God would teach. So, again, PG-13... Um, incest, sex with uh, a close family member, bestiality, sex with an animal, homosexuality, sex with the uh, same gender, fornication, sex with anybody, adultery, sex with anybody that's not your spouse. Those would be, at the minimum, what I would consider gross sexual immorality that would fit pornea, okay? You might be able to argue me into the case of someone who is in habitual pornography that will and is unrepentant because it's in the Word. My point is, we're talking about serious stuff that seriously undermines the intimacy in a relationship that is so important in marriage. Intimacy is so important in a marriage. Physical intimacy is very important. It is not all that marriage is about. It is far from everything marriage is about. But it is a factor. It, it communicates something. How you do it, when you do it, if you do it, all of that matters. Sex is a gift from God for those who to practice in the bounds of a biblical marriage covenant relationship, okay? A good marriage, okay? When we abuse it, corrupt it, misuse it, get outside of those bounds, that's where sin is and wreaking havoc in our marriages. Some of it happens physically. A lot of it happens up here. And in God's eyes, that's the same thing. You realize, right? Jesus said, you've heard that I've... This is Matthew 5. You've heard that it's said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery with her in your, in your mind. And, the, and in God's eyes, the consequences are different. But the 
But the mindset and the heart is at the same place. You just haven't gotten that far to actually carry it out. You haven't had, maybe you haven't had the opportunity. He uses that with the case for murder. He says, if you've hated your brother, it's like murder in your mind and in your heart. You're just as guilty. This is serious. So when he says this is an exception, he's saying it's a big deal when you have an unrepentant spouse who is repeatedly committing adultery or one of these other kinds of sexual immoral acts, repeatedly unrepentant. Okay? Now, some would say it only needs to be once. Okay? I'm not here to argue that case. I think every single case is unique and individual, and I think that's the way I'm going to deal with those instead of trying to make a blanket statement because I'm not going to nail this down so tight that you can write a, a paragraph on it. There's a lot of good people who are talking about this topic that have a lot of good takes on this. So I'm not the authority. I'm not saying this is it. I'm just saying this is my take as I read and study and learn, and I'm still getting there, okay? There is another exception that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a believer being married to an unbeliever. And that was happening a lot in those days because what was happening is Christianity was sweeping through the Roman Empire. Well, who is who lives in the Roman Empire? A lot of non-Jews who don't know anything about a biblical ethic. And some of them, would one would come to Christ and the other one wouldn't. So now, let's say she came to Christ. This was very common. She would come to Christ before him. And so now she's like, well, now I'm... Should I stay married? And Paul said basically this. He said, if he wants to stay, you stay and, and redeem him. In other words, live a life that points him to Christ and draws him to you, to the Lord. If he chooses to leave, let him go. If he abandons you, let him go. That's the except, they're called the abandonment or willful desertion exception. Okay. That's the only other one I find in Scripture. I'm not saying it's the only other one. I'm saying it's the only other one I find in Scripture right now. That's where I am, okay? Now, that leaves questions. I understand I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions. But I do want to say this. There is forgiveness and healing for those who would even now feel convicted. I didn't do that well. I didn't do that right, Okay? God forgives sin. He doesn't just forgive some sin, okay? Some of you feel guilty, and you've already repented, and you're still carrying around the guilt. Maybe it's the shame that the culture or you think people put on you. You need to receive that forgiveness and rest in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. His blood was shed so you could be forgiven and walk in that. If, God, if you would tell me that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself, then I would say you're probably not believing God forgave you either then, and he wants to. Let him believe he has. Let the healing come. Well, I've messed up multiple times. God's forgiveness is unlimited in the sense that there is no sin that's too far from him. Obviously, all of it is limited because our lives are limited. There's a point at which it's too late to repent. But I want you to find forgiveness. I want you to find peace. Now, if you are realizing you're guilty and you haven't ever repented of the sin, then the appropriate thing for you to do is to get right with God right now. It's to confess your sins to him right now. And he'll probably lead you to apologize to some people. But start with your relationship with him because everything flows from that. Okay? He wants to heal us. 
He wants to restore marriages first, reconcile, but that's not always possible. It takes two to tango. And when one doesn't want to, this one can want it all they want. It's not going to happen if this one rejects that. There's mercy and grace in that wake of that as well. It can happen sometimes in remarriage. When, when you have a, a, when you divorce with a biblical exception, remarriage is an acceptable option. But just because you're divorced doesn't automatically mean you did so for a, for a biblical reason and doesn't mean necessarily that remarriage is appropriate. Okay? Again, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty because every situation is so different. You have to seek the Lord on these. And I would say you try to include people who are more objective in helping you discern what does God's Word say. Because when you're in the midst of it, you are in a storm of storms and your emotions are all over the place. And even with the best of intentions, it's hard to know what should I do in this situation. Okay? Probably a divorce attorney is not your first stop. Now, for good reason, people don't go to the church for help because we've been pretty bad at that. And I mean the church in general. We're not really good at this, okay? And so I wouldn't blame you if you didn't start with the church. But I think that's what God would have you do. This is why it matters where you go to church. This is why it matters when you join a church. You're saying, I'm, I'm, I want to be under this authority. I want, to, I want to follow these leaders as they seek to teach and lead us through the Word of God. Okay, one more thing, and we're, we're going to finish these verses here. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. They don't sound real hopeful, do they? That tells you what marriage was like back then. It was horrible then too. Not for everybody. Statistically speaking. But Jesus doesn't address it. Jesus moves on to another important topic. And you're like, another topic? But he does it, so I'm doing it, okay? And he starts talking about eunuchs. Oh, my goodness. What's a eunuch? It's someone who's single. And either by choice or not, they have to remain single. He's going to give three scenarios where somebody might be made a eunuch. But there's the, don't miss the bigger point here, because we don't really talk about eunuchs, and I'm glad we don't very often. But PG-13, like I said, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, right? I mean, we've seen that in the church today, right? Not everybody can accept the word reconcile, because it's hard. It requires a miracle, which is appropriate your posture to say, I need a miracle is an appropriate thing to say when you're struggling in any kind of relationship where reconciliation is needed. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. So sometimes people are born not able to marry and have sexual intimacy with their spouse. And then, it says, and then he says, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. They've been made unable to and not by their choice. And then there's this third category. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs, who choose to live like eunuchs. That means they don't have to, and it might even just be for a season, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, if you think that marriage is the point of this passage, you're missing the point. 
He's saying if you think singleness is the point of this passage, you're missing the point. The point is the overarching principle that our number one full devotion is to be in a loving relationship with our Creator above and everything else. But here's the thing. When we get that right, the rest starts to fall into place, and we see it the way we need to see it. Jesus is saying, marriage, I have a very high view of marriage. It is created by God. But Jesus is also saying, I have a very high view of singleness. Whether you're single ever, whether you're single, but you were married and now you're single, for doesn't matter. He's saying, I have a very high view of singleness because there's something unique about that. You can be solely focused on me and you don't have this tension. Well, I have this spouse that I'm supposed to love sacrificially, that I want to love sacrificially right? But that's still a tension, is it not? Married people, is that not a tension that you live with, right? And it's legitimately so. Because it's one thing to say we should be united in one flesh. It's another to live that way. Amen? Right? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, this is what matters to Jesus. All authority has been given to Jesus so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. It's about the kingdom again and again and again. That's what Matthew is reminding us of. Jesus is saying it's about the kingdom. And, and so when we think of marriage, we tend to think of marriage as that's the most important thing. We, you know, we rank our importance things and sometimes we say God and, and, and marriage and, and kids and work. Well, sometimes we go God and work and marriage and kids. Let's see, uh, job and marriage. And, you know, we do, we have trouble with that. Jesus said, kingdom, and I'm the king, and it's a relationship. That's the one that matters. And so then he ends with, the one who can accept this should accept this. And so there's the choice that you have before you today, okay? What is God saying to you, and what are you going to do about that? For some of you, you know somebody that's struggling in their marriage and they need to hear from you today, this week. They need to hear from you. Let me tell you what God says about marriage before you make any rash decisions. Because I think God wants us to forgive and over and over and over, like Peter said, well, how many times? Seven times? And Jesus is like, 70 times seven. Oh, only 490 times? No, that's symbolic for every time. But, but they keep doing it. And it's serious, sexual immorality or whatever. Okay, I'm going to say this. You forgive them every time. That doesn't mean you don't at some point get to the place where divorce is appropriate. Okay? It should be a last resort. But you don't need to be so afraid to even think it that you can't consider it under biblical conditions. And you don't know how hard that is for me to say, okay? It has taken me a long time to be able to say those words, okay? I have four daughters who are all married, so. <laughs> Statistically, right? You see what I'm saying? I have, you know? So I don't ever want to see a divorce. God hates divorce, clearly. But at the same time, I don't also want to guilt somebody into staying in a situation they should not stay in. Okay? There are legitimate ways to deal with that. 
and you don't need to go around and stay in a marriage that where you've been abandoned long ago or where sexual immorality has been a part, and you, because you love Jesus, are staying in that. At the same time, Jesus can reconcile any marriage. Okay? And one of the reasons he makes it hard to remarry, one of the reasons he does that is after a divorce, there is still hope. And I know our culture says divorce and move on. All your friends will say, move on. You got to move on. But if they haven't married, and either they are Christians or they come to Christ, there's hope. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what it says, and I'm saying, trust God to speak to you through the church. If you have to get to the attorneys at some point, I understand. But try to give, try to believe that God can change something that you think is impossible. And it's okay to ask God for a miracle. It's okay. Because that's what he does. Because it's about your, it's about more than your marriage. It's about his kingdom. And everything we do reflects on that. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to lift up the people in here who are, who feel the pain again. I probably maybe it feels like the scab has been ripped off and they're just hurting. And I just pray, God, you'd wrap your arms around them and that you would embrace them with mercy and grace. Remind them that you love them and there's nothing they can do to change that. Your love is unconditional, and it's sacrificial as demonstrated on the cross. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would first comfort them and let them know you are with them, you are for them, you love them. They are your beloved. You treasure them. They matter. So that when they try to deal with whatever it is they're dealing with right now, something that's happened in the past, something in the present, something they're afraid of even in the future, that they would have the clarity of thought to turn to you and to rest in you for direction, wisdom, truth, holiness, and the power to follow through to do what they know they should do, whatever that is. I pray for those in the room who know people who are in these stages and they have an opportunity to come alongside and to lovingly, Walk with them through that. When people are running away, you may we be the ones who run too. Lord, for marriages in our church, I pray for you to just double dose your grace and mercy. It is so, it, it takes so little time to go from a simple argument about something stupid to I want a divorce. It doesn't seem to take very far to go. And Lord, my prayer is that you would give us the, the, the perspective that even in the heat of the moment, we would hold our tongue or we would be willing to say, I'm sorry, or even just walk away and cool off before we say anything, Lord, so that we minimize the potential for making something small, a rash word that can't be undone or a rash action. So that's mercy and grace again. I pray that as a church, you would help us be in um, a good place to turn for people who are struggling 
so that they can, and that they can find help and healing and hope because there are people there who love them, who aren't their judges, who are there to support them and carry, help walk with them through a difficult relationship. I pray for our singles. In a culture that is always asking the question, why aren't you married yet? Assuming that that's what's best and it's not for everybody. Lord, I pray you would remind singles that they are who they are and they don't need another person to complete them. Jesus wasn't married and Jesus was the most complete whole person to ever walk the planet. He never had kids. He never was married. And yet, he, he served you to the end perfectly. I pray that you would um, help those who are single now to be content in who they are and where they are, even if they have a desire for marriage, which is a legitimate desire. May they, though, find the peace and the, and the strength to just be who they are so that they're not called into a marriage relationship for the wrong reasons or at the wrong time. And I pray that as a church that values marriage and families, that we would not insensitively pressure people towards something that may not even be your will in their situation. You use all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. And we need single people living for the kingdom of God. And in some ways, they can just do it better. Because they don't have that tension to battle that married folks have. Lord, there's so many other things I could pray. I don't even know how to pray. And so, Lord, I just ask you even now, in, in their minds, just bring to their minds what you want for them right now. May you flood our hearts with your peace. May we be reminded that as your children, we are full of the Holy Spirit and that you can fill us up to overflowing with even more, that we would rest in the truth and the belief that you are with us and therefore we don't need to be afraid, that we can just be who you made us to be and be content in that. I want to pray for one more group of people. I pray for Christian counselors and counselors who are Christians that you would speak through them as they deal on the front lines with this every day that you would give them your wisdom, your direction, your resources, so that they can do that with, with every bit of um, your anointing that they need. God bless us. You bless us with them. And so, Lord, we, we come to you with this as a needy people, but believing there's hope. And we rest in this in Jesus' name.